I feel like I haven't been here for ages. We've been away on holiday, and uh, it, it went so it was Sunday to Sunday, um, so for two weeks. So I ended up missing three weeks of, of uh, NKCC and I, or Eastgate, and I really missed it. So it's really good to be back here again this evening. Got a question for you. Um, who in their life, some point in their life, thinks they had a really good idea? Thank you. Somebody over there. Yeah, I had a really good idea. I married my husband. That was a really good idea 33 years later. 20 years ago, I had a good idea when I, um, I joined the church here. Anyone want to share their good idea with me? I saw Rebecca's hand up. Fancy sharing it? Your good idea. Well, I've had a few, but the one I was thinking of is that I moved to the UK like almost three years ago now. I think it was a good idea. Yeah, we think so too. <laughs> Anybody else want to share their good idea? Come on. can't believe none of you have had any good ideas. Mary, did you want to share yours? I saw your hand up. See, if you don't volunteer, I'm going to pick on you. It's a bit embarrassing because it wasn't um, a personal thing, but I just thought, wouldn't it be good if to invent something like grass only grew that big? <laughs> You could breathe it in and then you wouldn't have to mow your lawns ever again. <laughs> that is fantastic. Yeah, see, you can have good ideas. You can't always make them happen. <laughs> okay, there have been a lot of people in history who have had um, good ideas. So I've got a few of them here. Newton. Newton had a good idea. These are ideas that changed history. Newton, um, whose laws of motion and gravity um, formed the basis for modern science and engineering, for example, or Einstein, we've all heard of him, I hope. Um, his work contributed substantially to modern physics. Or maybe Tim Berners-Lee. Do you know that name? You're close. Thank you, Hugh. Yeah, it's actually the World Wide Web. It's not a name people always know, but he invented the World Wide Web. What was that for you? Oh, it's, I'm sorry, it's Sir Tim Berners-Lee. I don't think he was probably a sir when he invented it, though. Okay. So, they were men that changed history. Someone else, um, Alexander Graham Bell, which is also a name that we, we know well. Now, he was a really amazing man, a really talented man. And um, he had one invention, which we'll get to later, which um, he's most famous for. But actually, he invented lots of things. Um, he invented the tricycle, apparently. Um, he also invented um, uh, what they called, um, I think it's multiple telegraph, where you could send more than one message or something down the line. I'm saying this a bit vaguely because I never was very good at this sort of stuff, but um, I'm sure some of you could explain it better. Um, he also um, invented um, the audio meter, which is what we use to, thanks, Sambola, which is what we use to test hearing. Alexander Graham Bell was married to a lady who was deaf, and he worked with the deaf all his life. We tend to think that he was a scientist, but actually he was a professor of elocution at Boston University. Um, in fact, he, he came up with the idea for a whole host of machines. He also co-founded a, a really well-known, prestigious magazine at the time, scientific magazine, and he was president of the National Geographic Society. So he did a lot, but the thing that he's most well-known for, the telephone, nearly didn't get credited to him. He 
had come up with the ideas, and this isn't a fully formed telephone, obviously, as we would sort of know it today, but it was the ideas that kind of made the telephone work, and he was the first to kind of get the voice to go down the line. If you want more information, you can ask Hugh afterwards, who's giving me a very interested look, because I'm not good at explaining this stuff. I'm sure he can. Um, but he, what happened, he had the idea, he'd kind of done work on it, he got, you know, the, the whole kind of thing going on. But he hadn't got round to going down to the patent office and filing a patent on the, the telephone. Um, when you invent something, you probably know that in order to make sure someone else doesn't run off with your idea or take credit for it or make money out of it, you have to file a patent for whatever it is. Well, Alexander Graham Bell hadn't done that. And um, eventually his father-in-law, who had, produced, who had provided most of the finance for his research and for what he produced... I think he probably got fed up with it, and he got his lawyer to go down to the patent office to hand deliver um, uh, the, the, what you need to, you know, to show in order for the patent to be filed, and the patent was filed. But just a few hours later, somebody else, um, whose name was, I've lost my place, place, hold on a second. Elisha Gray, I think it was. Yeah. Um, another, another man called Elisha Gray, who'd also been working, would you believe, on the idea of a telephone, went down to the patent office and filed, or, or, or filed his patent for what he had, um, he had invented. Now, this wasn't the end of the story. There was a whole load of stuff went on while they kind of debated about who kind of, uh, you know, had actually, um, come up with the ideas for the telephone. But eventually, um, the patent had gone in first, and it was um, credited to Alexander Graham Bell. And that invention made him and his family very, very wealthy. Nobody today knows the name Elisha Gray. He missed out on that. And, um, you see, Alexander Graham Bell, he had, he had faith in something. He had faith in his telephone. But it took faith and action, which his father-in-law had, it took faith and action to get the thing to actually happen. And I thought that was a, a good illustration, really, of what I want to um, speak about tonight, which is faith and its connection to action, or as the Bible says, works. Bell had faith in his telephone. His father-in-law had faith and the action to go with it. Can we put the first passage up, please? So this is from James 2, very well-known passage, James 2, 14 to 23. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister without clothes and daily foods, if one of them says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Now, I wanted to look at this passage because um, 
I think that, you know, so often, and absolutely rightly, we concentrate on our relationship with the Father, on our identity, who we are, the unconditional love that he has for us. All of those things are true and right and important. I've preached myself on what we do has to come out of knowing who we are and knowing who God is. But there's always a danger with that, that we throw the baby out with the bathwater as far as works are concerned. Faith and works are meant to go together. It's like breathing. So if I breathe in, At some point, I'm going to have to breathe out, particularly if I want to breathe in again. Now, I know the singers here could do that much better than me and for quite a lot longer. So you can't breathe in and not breathe out. Breathing in and breathing out go together. And Billy Graham said this. He said, faith is taking the gospel in. Works is taking the gospel out. And I think that's a great description of it. You can't have faith without works. They go together like breathing in and breathing out. True faith always produces something. If it doesn't produce something, then James says it's dead. What does faith produce? Well, if we looked at the whole book of James, then we'd see that right the way through, he's encouraging his readers to think about how their faith affects every area of their life. And he uses an example in this passage of someone who's in need... And, you know, if you just say to them, well, you know, keep, keep well, be, be happy, off you go, and don't actually address the need, then that's like faith without deeds, and it's dead. So he uses that example of caring for people. But actually, through the book, he uses a whole range of different ideas to make us think about how, what our faith looks like um, in action. So he talks about being careful how we speak, about bridling the tongue, that we shouldn't judge and criticize one another. And he speaks about persevering under trial. He talks about not being selfish or ambitious at the expense of others. And he talks about getting our wisdom from God rather than from man. All of those things come out of our faith and they produce fruit. They produce works. Faith should produce deeds and it should produce fruit in our lives. And some of those things we can find elsewhere. So we've got the second passage, Galatians 5. There we go. Another very well-known passage. Now, this is some of the fruit that um, faith or true faith produces. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So it's called the fruit of the Spirit, but it comes out of faith. Yeah, the Holy Spirit doesn't. I wish he would, but he doesn't just kind of wave a magic wand, and I'm immediately completely kind and loving and... um, absolute self-control in everything and always faithful and all those things that doesn't happen does it but actually the the, the gifts of the, the fruits of the spirit come out of our faith see faith is meant to be active it's active and it's interactive it's not just a list of feelings sorry can we can we have that one back up again the Galatians thank you it's not just a, a list of feelings so It's not just that I'm meant to feel love. I'm meant to feel joy. I'm meant to feel peace. It's not just that I'm meant to experience those things. Yes, I do. Of course I do. But actually, it's about how we interact with others. They are active things. And so when we 
go out into the world, our faith is demonstrated by those things in our life, by acting on those things. We're meant to demonstrate them to others. So, you know, when we know how much we're loved, when we understand the love of God in our lives, then the fruit of that in our life is that we are able to love and to demonstrate that love to others. Joy and peace, which I really think go together, don't they? Because, you know, when we are full of joy, then we tend to be at peace. And when we are at peace, then there tends to be that inner joy in us. They go together. How, how is that demonstrated in our lives? How is that a kind of an outworking of our faith? Well, you know, when we go into situations of conflict or when we're dealing with um, people who are anxious or fearful, we should be able to bring that peace and to bring that joy into the situation. The world's way of dealing with conflict, the world's way of dealing with fear, is very often to take control. You know, that if I'm afraid, I'm going to grab control so you can't hurt me. If I'm in a situation of conflict, I'm going to grab control so you don't make me do something I don't want to do or take me somewhere I don't want to go. But actually, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of our faith, is because we can trust God, then we can bring peace and we can bring joy into those situations. Now, parents, I'm sure, know about this one. Um, I've had, um, well, I've got, still got one teenager and two boys who are no longer teenagers. And there are times, I have to say, probably particularly in their teens, when I felt like I'm losing control here, <laughs> where we've kind of come into conflict because they're growing up, they're trying to assert their independence, they're trying to be their own people, and I'm, I'm afraid for them when I see some of the choices they make. And I'm afraid that they'll do the wrong thing. And I'm afraid they'll go to the wrong places. And what's my initial reaction? Grab control back. You know, most parents, if they admit it, have shouted at their children sometimes because they're afraid for them. So they, you raise your voice. Actually, with mine, to be honest, I think the easiest thing would be just to lock them in their bedrooms and say, you can't come out till you're 25. Yeah, it would be a good idea. <laughs> but you see, that's not what we, we need to bring into our homes. Now, you know I'm not talking about setting boundaries and teaching them the consequences of their actions and, you know, that sin has consequences. All that stuff, that's part of good parenting. That's not what I'm talking about. It's about how I react when, when there's conflict, how I react when there's fear in my family. Children are the first to notice when, um, let's say, you're talking the talk but not walking the walk. And they'd also be the first to tell you that. We've got some of the others here. Forbearance or patience. Um, so it's the same idea, really. Um, kindness, goodness, and gentleness, it's the same idea. When we know those things in our life through faith in him, then they become fruits. We demonstrate them. You know that we're called to be imitators of Christ. He demonstrated all those fruits of faith. He was a perfect man of faith, and it was demonstrated in his life. One of the, the ones that perhaps we find hardest is, is self-control. That's a bit of a tough one. 
most of us have areas in our lives in which it's difficult. You know, we find it very hard to be self-controlled. But Jesus was the most self-controlled man in history. Um, I had a whole series of verses for this, and I'm not going to, if anyone really wants them, you can ask me afterwards. I'm just going to tell you, you know, what it says about him. But the, but the Bible tells us this. It says, all his life he was without sin. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He stayed the course, even when sweat came like drops of blood. He could have called 12 legions of angels, but he didn't defend himself or rebut the false charges made against him. When reviled, he didn't revile in return. I was thinking about road rage with that one, actually. I had someone kind of wave their hands at me the other day, and, you know, the temptation just kind of wave their hands back again, especially when it was his fault. Um, They spat in his face and struck him. Some slapped him. They scourged him. In every trial and temptation, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And then finally, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's self-control. That's a man of faith with self-control. And the Bible tells us that it's Christ who strengthens us, you and me. So how does he do that? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.14 tells us that it's the love of Christ that controls us. Self-control doesn't come from just a sheer determination that you're going to do it differently, you're going to do it better. It comes from knowing the love of Christ and for loving him, from loving him in return. When we know that, when that love of Christ is produced by faith, then it allows us to exercise self-control in regard to others as well as to ourselves. And then that becomes a demonstration of the love and power of God in our lives. Faithfulness, that keeps us going no matter what. God is a faithful God. God never changes. And it's the faithfulness of God in my life. It's my faith in his goodness. It's the faithfulness of Christ that took him to the cross and my faith in him that should produce that fruit of faithfulness in me. Never giving up being true to my faith and being true to my word. Now, all of those could be a preaching themselves. But in the passage in James, can we just go back there for a moment? I'm going to make you jump around a bit today. Thank you. In that passage, though, in verse 18, James says this. He says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. See, when our deeds, our works, the fruit of our lives demonstrates our faith, then we stop just speaking the message and we become the message. We don't just talk the talk, we walk the walk. And it's walking the walk that changes things. It's walking the walk that impacts other people, not what we say. You know, just like me probably, you listen to... um, you know, what's being said on the television at the moment with uh, the Labour Party looking for a new leader. And I'm going to be absolutely keeping away from, you know, any kind of comments on politics here. Uh, So whatever you believe is fine. But the thing that always strikes me is how, you know, they're trying to say what you want to hear. And so they'll change what they're saying when it doesn't seem to be working. We'll just try something else. We'll fit it in another way. And so you don't really believe them, do you? Because you don't see the the fruit of that. Um, And I think... That that's where we have to be different. You know, the, the fruit in our life is what we do, not what we say. So when people look at us, what we say has to match up to what we do. 
I have um, a, a very dear friend, been a friend of mine for a long time, and um, a year ago she lost her husband Kevin to cancer. Now he was, um, they're both Christians, he was in his early 50s and it came very much out of the blue. And I went up to visit him when he was in the hospice and um, my husband and I, Stuart and I, went up to the funeral um, later on. And for me, um, his, his death, I suppose, was a lesson um, in the fruit of faith. So he went through some really excruciating pain. He had um, uh, lots of fractures in his pelvis where the, um, where the cancer had gone into his bones. And he had um, secondaries in his lungs. And he, he really um, held on to his faith in God during that time. So there were lots of people praying for them. And in fact, he, he responded very well to treatment, and it gave them another year together. Now, nobody talked about a cure, um, but he had faith in God, and there was lots of prayer for healing. But as the time went on, they thanked God very much for the year that they had. But after that time, the cancer began to advance again, and it invaded his brain. So he had his secondaries in his brain as well. And he, he came to a point where he knew, and his, his wife knew, that actually God was going to take him home. And he, during that year that he had, he used it to, to do several things. One of the things that he did was to bless his children. He, both of them had come to faith quite late in life, but he, he wanted to bless his children. He, did, he was able to do that. He was able to see his son married, and he was able to talk to his daughter about the things that he wouldn't be able to share with her. And it was, I mean, my, my, my friend would say that it was an amazing time for them. And they, were, they gave God uh, the glory in that and the praise in that. But as um, he, he became ill again, um, a church friend, while he was in the hospice, a church friend went in to see him and said to him, you know, how does it feel, Kevin, to be at the end of the race? And he turned and looked at him and he said, fantastic. And he was singing worship songs right up to his death. I, absolutely. Why was he able to do that? Well, you know, there are two other fruits in particular that right through the New Testament go hand in hand with faith, and that is love and hope. So we all know that, you know, the Corinthians passage, which gets used at weddings all the time about faith, hope, and love, but there are other places in the New Testament that talk about these things. Can we put 1 Thessalonians 13 up there, please? Paul says this, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus. My, my friend's husband, Kevin, he was a man of faith. He demonstrated that by the fruit in his life. And when we went up to the funeral, it was absolutely packed with people. It was a huge um, Anglican church, um, a charismatic Anglican church. And there were many, many Christian friends and family there. But there were also so many people from his um, place of work. Now, um, Kevin was... Um, a, a, an executive in a, a well-known um, national company. And um, the most, one of the most moving things for me was when one of the uh, employees got up um, and he was giving a eulogy. And he told the story of how when he and his wife had had their first child and were experiencing the usual sleep deprivation that comes you know, with that, he was in the office one evening working late, um, just trying to get something finished off, you know, like you do. And 
um, Kevin came in and he looked at his junior and he said with a smile, should you be here? So um, the junior explained that he was just finishing off a piece of work and he was asked again, should you be here? And realization dawned and he realized that what he was actually being asked was what's more important, finish off, off this piece of work or being at home with your wife and new baby. And so he gratefully packed up his things and he went home. And he went on in the eulogy to speak of the wisdom, the love, the compassion, um, the mentoring and the faith, the evident faith in God that Kevin demonstrated in the workplace. So much so that he himself eventually became a Christian. That's faith being lived out or given out, as Billy Graham would say. Faith producing works inspired by the love of God and love for others. And see, Kevin had something else that was produced through faith. It was hope. At the beginning of his illness, there was you know, hope of healing, and that was a genuine hope. Um, there was real faith for healing. But at the end, when Kevin knew that it was time to go home, it wasn't a sort of disappointed hope. He didn't feel let down. He knew where he was going. And in fact, he used to be a runner. And for him, death was like the finishing tape. You know, the, the, it was a victory. It wasn't the end. And that's why he was able to endure the pain and keep praising and keep living out his faith despite it. His hope was certain. He knew where he was going. Faith produced hope in him. And it produces hope, or it should produce hope in us. Hebrews tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for. So hope isn't a vain thing, a vain hope. Sometimes people talk about vain hopes or an uncertain hope, something you just, just hope might happen. It's an assured hope. You can translate it as this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Because that word, that word that they, they translate here, substance, is like the foundation, the substance on which um, your hope sits. It's a sure foundation. Faith itself is the certain belief and assurance in the love, goodness, and faithfulness of God in all circumstances and in all situations. And our hope sits on that foundation. Faith should also produce obedience. It's not always a very popular word, that. And again, I've probably mentioned this before in a in a sermon, but one of my favourite, um, well, book it's a good book, but it, the book title has always really struck me by a guy called Eugene Peterson. It's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And he's thinking about the Christian faith, and that's what it is, isn't it? A long obedience in the same in, in the same direction. But actually, what that obedience really means, in many cases, is the willingness for us to step out and take risks. See. How does that work? Well, faith causes me to know the love and the goodness of God, doesn't it? And faith in him and in his goodness and in his love means faith in his promises. Faith in his promises enables me to know things like his plans for me are good ones and they'll prosper me. Faith in him means faith in his word, not just what I read in the book, important as that is, but also his words to me at any time and in any situation. 
Romans 10:17 says this. It says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God or Christ, sometimes translated. Now, there are two words here, two Greek words. Um, well, there's two Greek words that can be used for the word, the, the word we translate word, if you see what I mean. Um, one of them is logos, and that usually gets associated with, with Jesus himself. But the word that we have here, so where it says, I'm hearing by the word of God, that word, word, is the word rima in Greek. And rima, it's like the active spoken word of God. It's an action word. And it's that, it's that spoken word of God that engenders faith in us. So an example of that is when Peter, um, when Jesus told Peter to cast out the fishing nets on the, um, on, the, on the other side of the boat after they'd been fishing all night and not caught anything. You know that story in Luke 5. Peter says to him this, he says, Master, we've toiled all night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, at thy rema word, I will let down the net. So Peter heard the rema word of God. And when he heard it, it brought faith, it engendered faith in him. So then there's the obedience bit, isn't there? Because he heard the word, engendered faith, and he took a risk. He let the net down on the other side of the boat. And as he did that, he received the blessing. And he pulled in, they pulled in the nets. They had a, you know, a net, a catch that was so big they could hardly contain it. When Peter was in the boat and he saw Jesus coming towards him, um, he heard the rema word of Jesus say, come, and it gave him the faith to step out of the boat and onto the water. Now, it's true he had a bit of a wobble later, but Jesus held him up, and I guess we've all been in that position sometimes. The Rima word of God initiates faith, which produces action. See, it's God that initiates faith. His whole plan of reconciliation depended on it. And actually, it was one of his best ideas. I thought about that and thought, actually, go back. I was actually having a conversation with God and said, why, why do you like faith so much? And he said, it's one of my best ideas. But when I thought about it afterwards... Um, you know, like we say, I'm God's favorite, and that's true, isn't it? And, you know, you, you can say, I'm God's favorite. Well, the, we sort of say to ourselves, well, how can God have that many favors? Of course, we're all God's favorite. Well, the truth about God's ideas is all God's ideas are his best ideas. But this is a good one. <laughs> his idea of faith changed history. So Newton Einstein Tim Berners-Lee, Alexander Graham Bell, they don't compare with the ideas of God. They don't compare with his idea of faith that changes history. We often talk about how God allows us to partner with him, how he loves us to partner with him. Well, faith is the vehicle which allows us to do just that. Through faith, we partner with him in our actions to extend the kingdom. Through faith, we partner with him to bring heaven to earth. And faith is a gift, but sometimes we have to contend for it. It's one of those kind of paradoxes. Faith comes from God. You know, most of us have had times in our lives where something's happening, maybe it's really difficult, and we do just have peace. And Actually, we don't even know why we've got peace. If we look at it logically, we're thinking, I shouldn't have peace, but I have got peace. I have got faith. 
I know God's going to come through. And sometimes it's like that. It's just a gift. But there are other times when we have to fight for that peace. We have to fight for that gift of faith. And so we come back to him again and again and again with whatever it is, the same issue. And we say, Father, you know, like he says, you know, in the word, you know, I've got faith, but help me with my unbelief. Help me in those areas that I'm struggling. Give me more faith. And we contend for it. And we, our faith, although we're not saved by works, we're only saved by faith, works is the other side of the coin. And so as our faith is demonstrated, it doesn't just affect the people that we're demonstrating it to, it affects us. Because as we take risks in faith, as we step out and we see what God does, then our faith grows. When we're obedient, even if things don't work out quite how we think they're going to, our faith grows. Um, I may have shared this before. I'm sure some of you have heard this story, so forgive me if I share it again. But um, a couple of years ago now, um, I was in a situation where I was asked to pray for someone to be raised from the dead. Um, We weren't expecting that. It was a kind of emergency call to uh, somebody who was um, at the hospital with their husband who was dying of... um, brain tumor and um, we were asked whether we would go and pray so we went down to pray as we arrived literally a few minutes before um, the man had died and so we kind of came in wasn't somebody in our church or anything so all chaos broke loose really there were sorts of people you know crying outside and whatever but um, his wife opened the door saw us grabbed us and dragged us into the room shut everybody else out and said I want you to pray for him to be raised from dead well, it's kind of, it was a bit like, oh, right. <laughs> um, I, I was with um, David and Christine West at the time, and um, I mean, I, I used to be a nurse, so it's not a big deal, but Christine had never seen a dead person before, so it was a bit traumatic, she doesn't mind me saying, it's a bit tra- it was a bit traumatic for her. So she was at one end of the bed, and um, David and I were up at the head end of the bed, and um, we were praying for this guy, and all I can say is that God just gave me a, an amazing faith that this guy could be raised from the dead. And as we were praying, I knew that if he opened his eyes and sat bolt upright, I wouldn't be the slightest surprise. Now, he wasn't raised from the dead. So I didn't quite get what I expected in that sense. But when we left, I found that my faith had gone up. And it was like, raise someone from the dead, bring it on. Which doesn't make any sense, does it, really? Because I hadn't seen this guy raised from the dead. And yet... The very act of obedience, of doing what God had asked, brought a rise in faith in me. So don't look on it as failure. When you step out in faith and it doesn't work out exactly as you think it's going to, don't look on it as failure. Look on it as a kind of step on the journey and there is more to come. If you can pray for someone to to be raised from the dead today and they're not raised from the dead, well, maybe they will be tomorrow. Because certainly the day before, I wouldn't have been praying for anyone to be raised from the dead. I wouldn't have had the faith for it. Faith sometimes has to be contended for. Now, there are things that I know I don't have faith for, if I'm honest. And I think most of us, if we examine our hearts, we kind of know that we should have faith for absolutely anything. But the truth is, the reality is, that there are things we don't have faith for. And, um, I mean, I'll be honest, you know, I, I've said again before, I find treasure hunting quite a difficult thing. I think you know, Sasha's disappeared. 
but kind of hearing, all oh right, <laughs> hearing Sasha's exploits and some of the people who have gone out with her, you know, they only have to appear in a shopping centre, it seems, and, you know, I won't say the dead are raised, but kind of limbs are healed and goodness knows what else. I, I mean, I might have faith to go out with Sasha, but to just go out on my own into blue water, I would find that very difficult to do. But I want the faith for it. I want that faith. In the last few verses of the James passage, can we just pop it up again? I'm keeping you busy. Thank you. In the last few verses of the passage, um, James refers to, he talks about Abraham and the fact that his unswerving faith in God meant that when God said, offer Isaac up on the altar you know, as, a, as a sacrifice, as a burnt offering, he started making the preparations to do just that. And he got to the point of having Isaac bound and put on the altar, and the coals were there, and he had a knife, and then God said, no. But he had gone that far. I do sometimes wonder what Isaac must have thought. But, um, <laughs> but Abraham's faith in God was that strong. And this, of course, was before Christ. But the Bible tells us that his faith was credited to him as righteousness, and that it gave him a new title. He became known as the friend of God. And you know, Abraham himself became a message because of his faith. So he's talked about in the New Testament. In the beginning, Abraham was considered the father of the Jews. And you know, the story of Abraham went right down through history in the Jewish nation. And he became the message of faith to them. But he also became the message of faith to us when we believed. When God asks us to do something and we act our faith, well, if we strike again, when God asks us to do something and we actually act on that, then our faith, like Abraham's, is made complete. So our faith in God saves us, but there is a completeness that comes when we act in faith. Because that's what faith is meant to do. So it doesn't, it doesn't do anything about saving us, but it does bring a completeness to the faith that we have. And it means that faith is operating in the fashion that it's meant to operate. It's operating in the way that it's meant to operate. When, he, when we do that, we become the message. We become his message to the world. When he asks us to do something and we don't act because we're afraid to do it, you know God isn't taken by surprise, don't you? We don't surprise God when he says do X and we don't do it because he, he knows but rather, he's giving us the opportunity in that space to see our blind spots of faith. Because very often, we think we have faith in something, but we don't necessarily. Um, some time ago now, we, um, well, long before all the stuff that's been happening here in the last sort of five or six years, we, um, we talked about um, kind of using the prophetic uh, with people that we just kind of, you know, saw out, out in the world. Now, it might sound quite normal now, but it wasn't normal then. And um, so I was sitting in a cafe. I was sitting in Sainsbury's. And I could see a lady sitting across the other side of the cafe to me. And um, I thought, oh, I wonder if this prophetic, you know, word God had given me. So I kind of said, okay, God, tell me something about that lady. And he said, that lady needs me to heal her hip. She has a problem with her hip. Now, at that point, I should have leapt to my feet, rushed across the cafe, and prayed for this lady. Guess what? I didn't. Because the thing was, I didn't have 
the faith for it. And God knew that. So I sat there and I did all that. Oh, well, she probably doesn't have any kind of problem with a hip, you know. And um, anyway, after a while, a lady came in with a wheelchair, went up to this woman, helped her into the wheelchair, <laughs> and off they went. I really struggled for a while. I felt very condemned, as you can imagine. And it wasn't God condemning me, it was myself. But I imagined God with a wry smile, because he, he wasn't surprised. I wasn't ready for that. I think today it would be different. You know, it, I can't quite believe how far we've come in the last sort of five or six years where this has become a normal thing. And, you know, knowing that actually God will do that. But then it was just totally out of my comfort zone. I was not going to do that. But God highlighted something to me there. And you have two choices when God highlights something about your faith. If you've got a blind spot in your faith, if you've got something you struggle with, you can either just sit and feel condemned, and that's not God, or you can say, Father God, give me faith in that area. Raise my faith in that area. There was um, a very famous tightrope walker called Blondin. And in 1859, he was the first man to walk across a tightrope across Niagara Falls. Now, I've been to Niagara Falls. I can't imagine how you could do that. But he, he did it. And uh, he didn't only just walk across the falls. I think he did it about 300 times in the end. But he did all sorts of mad things, like walk across it with um, a, a sack over his head so he couldn't see. Didn't have any safety net or any rope. Um, what else did he do? One time he stopped halfway across, lit a little stove and cooked an omelette. Why? Don't know. Um, he, he took a wheelbarrow across and then he took a wheelbarrow across with potatoes in it. And he asked people whether they believed he could get across. Yes, they said. Right, he says, who wants to come and sit in the wheelbarrow? Nobody sat in the wheelbarrow. Nobody would do that. His manager actually eventually apparently went across on his back, which I thought was pretty amazing. But the thing is, it's easy to say, yeah, we believe, until you're put in the position of saying, all right, get in the wheelbarrow then. I had um, an example in my own life, which was very recently. I actually, um, we, apart from Sozo, we have another ministry here now called RTF Restoring the Foundations. And the Alexanders are heading up in the church. But I didn't know very much about RTF. You know, I do Sozo stuff. So I thought, oh, well, I should go and have an RTF session. You know, so if I'm going to recommend it to people, then better do it, haven't I? So um, I went along for this RTF session, and it was fine. It was great. Um, apart from quite a long way through, I don't even remember how it came up, but she said, uh, Sarah said to me, can you lay your kids on the altar? And I, I would have said before I went into that session, yeah, whatever, God. And I suddenly, there was that thing inside. I couldn't say the words. I lay my kids on the altar. And it showed me something about me. It showed me that although I think I trust my kids to God, there's still a bit of an issue there. There's still that bit of me that won't quite hand over control and trust him and say, okay, put them on the altar like Abraham did. I'm working on that. We all have areas in our lives where we don't have that perfect trust and faith, but we're a work in progress. And I can always ask him for more faith. Do you know, when Peter, just going back to the story of Peter getting out of the, the boat and walking on the water, I thought it was quite an interesting one, really, because, you see, it, it, it wasn't that Jesus just appeared out of nowhere and said, come, and then Peter hopped out of the boat. 
What actually happened was the Lord was coming towards the boat and they're peering out. And Peter calls out, you know, if it's you, Lord, in effect, you know, call me and I'll come to you. Well, it's like Peter saying, I've got so much faith, but I need more. I want to get out of the boat. I want to come to you, but I need more. So when he says that, and then Jesus says, it's like he's asking for more faith. Jesus calls him. He hears that rumor word faith. He receives the faith that he needs in able to get out of the boat. When do we ask him for faith? Do we only ask him when we're in tough situations? I've been guilty of that. It's quite easy to potter along quite happily. And then you hit something that's a little bit more difficult than you expect. What do you do? Oh, God, give me faith. But we can ask him for faith at any time. And that can be a scary prayer, I have to be honest. There's a cost to it, because I might just find myself out in the waves without a boat, like Peter did. Then again, I might learn how a good and faithful God will give me his arm to lean on as we partner together through the vehicle of faith to change the world and to bring heaven to earth. Amen.